This is the Greatest Story Ever podcast. There comes a time when all the cosmic tumblers have clicked into place and the universe opens itself up for a few seconds to show you what's possible. With Keith Conrad. You know, everything is not an anecdote. You have to discriminate. Here's a good idea. Have a point. It makes it so much more interesting for the listener. This is a podcast all about collecting the most crazy and unbelievable experiences you've ever had in your life. Now, one person who has a story to tell might be Austin Goodrich from Oregon. Like millions of Americans, except for me, Austin received his stimulus check from the government last week. Same day, he got some really weird texts from his property manager. So his landlord asked him, you got your stimulus just asking, are you going to pay rent or part of rent with it? Goodrich uh, recently lost his job as a security guard due to the coronavirus pandemic, and he asked his landlord how he knew he got his check. The landlord admitted he accessed the IRS Get My Payment site using Goodrich's social security number, you know, that he got off the uh, form when he rented the apartment, to look into the status of Goodrich's check as well as the status of other tenants' checks. Obviously, that's breaking all sorts of laws, and even besides that, it's just incredibly creepy. One person who also has a great story to tell is my friend KJ. Now, you may remember that last week I said that KJ was going to be on this edition of the podcast, talking about the time he flew former Presidents Bush and Clinton around when he was a Marine Corps helicopter pilot. It's a pretty amazing story, but I actually decided to change things up a bit and move KJ to next week. What could possibly bump such an unbelievable once-in-a-lifetime experience? Well, Mike Stiles is a former radio guy that I crossed paths with during my time in Atlanta. These days, he's the founder of Brand Content Studios, and I felt like I had to talk to Mike immediately because he and his wife both contracted the coronavirus. Now, thankfully, they both recovered, but Mike's story is one that can be extremely helpful to people as we battle the virus around the country and even around the world. Mike, thanks so much for joining me and sharing your story. Hey, anytime. I mean, when I left the hospital, my instructions by them were to go warn everybody. So that's what I've been uh, at least attempting to do. Well, you definitely did that on uh, on, on Facebook, and uh, hopefully we can uh, give you another opportunity here. Uh, so tell me kind of what your, your COVID journey was like, because uh, uh, so... I understand that uh, your wife had it before you did. Yeah. So before all this happened and when it first started getting out in the news that, you know, the virus was out there and it's coming and all this other stuff, my mental attitude was what a lot of people's is today. Um, It was that eh, this is probably overhyped. It's probably overblown. Uh, I'm not likely to get the virus. And even if I did, it will be a couple of days of maybe flu-like symptoms, and then it's over and you're immune, and then you go on with life. So Mm -hmm. I really, uh, you know, had that in my head. I'm an extremely healthy person. I have no existing conditions, no pre-existing conditions. I haven't been in the hospital overnight since high school. Uh, I've never been on prescription meds for any chronic or ongoing issues. So there was no reason in the world for me to think I was going to get it or that if I got it, it was going to be very bad. Um, Well, I learned my lesson about that. 
<laughs> so here, here's where where I am with with this. Um, you know, I am a quote unquote essential employee, so I'm still going uh, to work every day. Um, and uh, I I work with my fiance, so basically, there's no point in in me staying home because even though I could work from home, there's no point because if she was exposed to something, uh, you know, I'd get it or vi- or vice versa. So. I just yep. uh, keep going to work every day, but it's basically just between work and here. So I'm thinking that I'm probably not going to be exposed to it. So how did how did uh, how did uh, you and your wife both end up getting exposed to it? So she started showing symptoms around March 16th, and the symptoms were she was you know very flu like, your know, body aches, you're you're wiped out, you have no energy, you can barely get out of bed or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. she never ran a fever, which is the symptom that I was looking for, you know, most specifically, because at the time they said that was the big first symptom. Um, but she did have the dry cough. So she had several of the symptoms, just not fever. And we did the best we could to distance from each other. You know, I spent a few nights in the guest room, felt kind of silly, but you know, I was taking, we were going above and beyond with the precautions. And uh, I was wiping things down with the disinfectant wipes and, you know, just being uncharacteristically careful. But uh, so she went through that for a couple of days and then turned around and started getting better. Um, And that's all that she had. That was her whole experience with having the virus. Um, Then I started showing symptoms around the 23rd. And my experience was very different. You know, a lot of the same symptoms like body aches and you know, cough and that kind of thing. But um, the thing that kicked my butt were the the fevers. You know, I had really, really bad fevers over the course of the next several days. And we're talking about over 100, 100, 101, 102, 103. So my life for several days was just mostly being unconscious, sleeping 20 hours a day because you just don't have the energy for more than that. And alternating between having these uh, fever dreams and burning up to waking up in a freezing cold sweat and shivering. And that was just the cycle for about five days there. And was that before or after you ended up uh, going to the hospital? That was before. So Mm -hmm. uh, as if things weren't bad enough, we had a bad storm come through um, on the Tuesday that I went to the ER later that night. And it yeah, not- naturally, because because you're you live in uh, in Georgia, and uh, anybody who lives in the southeast in you know March April that that's going to happen. Yeah, we're kind of hurricane or tornado alley, you know, through here. Yeah. It wasn't a tornado, but it was strong straight line winds, knocked out power for about a day and a half. So no AC. I'm laying there with a fever that had now crossed 104. Um, I'm just in a haze. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not. I wake up and there's a flickering candle by my bed. And I think I've been thrown back into colonial times. You know, you're just so <laughs> confused. If you've never had a fever or fever dreams, uh, it is an acid trip beyond description. So I really wasn't terribly coherent at that point. You know, I had always heard, don't go to the hospital. They'll just send you home, you know, because... They don't want their rooms and facilities clogged up. And really, you're just supposed to ride it out at home. But apparently, if your fever is crossing 104, the nurses that were advising Kim that were friends of ours said, get him to the ER right away. So 
she grabbed me and threw me in the back of uh, her car. And, uh, you know, I really didn't have much say in the matter. And off we went to the ER. And I still thought even after I got there, they would just send me home. But when I got there, I started throwing up profusely, which was weird because nausea had not been a symptom prior to that. Yeah. Um, they took my temperature and uh, wheeled me back and got me in a room immediately. And I'm familiar with that ER. I know how long it usually takes to go through the process. And it was very stark to me how fast they were moving. And that's when you start thinking, wow, I must be worse than I thought. And truly, truly, I was. Mm -hmm. So did your did your wife get tested and did, did uh, you subsequently get get tested or were you basically just so basing she, the fact that she had it on on what you knew about the yes about the so she's never been tested uh, the assumption that we make is obviously that she had it but mm -hmm. this speaks to the lack of data and insufficient data and bad data that our uh, officials and leaders are working with you know because these people are not really being counted who had it mm -hmm. and who spread it. Um, they, uh, they don't let families in hospitals anymore. So when Kim dropped me off at the emergency room door, they just gave her some forms to fill out in her car and then sent her home to hope for the best. And that's a very new and jarring experience uh, for family members because they're immediately... Yeah, it seems like that's got to be like the scariest thing for both of you because, you know, you're kind of you're kind of out of it. You're in the middle of a fever dream where you think that you're in colonial times. And uh, uh, so, so you don't necessarily know what's going on in your end. And then and then she doesn't either. Yeah, well, I mean, I had heard and I'm you know, I stay up on current events. So I knew what the new policy was. I knew they weren't going to let her in. And I'm pretty good on my, you know, on my own. So I, I'm not someone who needs a whole lot of handholding. But on her end, you know, it was just a call daily from the nurse to give a progress report. And, you know, there was a few days there in the beginning when my vitals and all the markers that they're looking at were not uh, were not positive. They weren't going in the direction they wanted to go. So uh, it, it's very, very tough on family members that experience. But they, uh, you know, they took lung x-rays immediately. They saw the whole shattered glass look in my lungs. I had pneumonia in both lungs. It was very obvious that I had COVID, although they went ahead and tested me, did the nasal trip all the way up to the brain thing, which is, that's a, that's something you don't really want to pursue. Yeah, that, uh, that to me is the scariest part about this is if for <laughs> some reason, you know, like I had symptoms or, or, you know, for whatever reason, I had to be tested. That's the thing that, uh, that you know, that, that would literally scare me the most. Well, they did it quickly and they did it efficiently. They did both flu and COVID on me. So I had a total of four swabs, you know, up the nasal passages. So I didn't enjoy it. But, you know, now I'm hearing that at a lot of the drive-through testing centers, the uh, healthcare workers aren't doing the swabs. They, they just hand it to the person and let them do their own nasal swabs. Well, I assure you they're not going as far up, you know, into the nasal passage as the official test. So unless the test is different, there again, you know, I'm not sure about the quality of the results we're getting from the testing that we've been doing. 
Wow, that that's interesting to to think that uh, you know with the the number of cases that we have uh, th- that we're aware of at this point uh, that it still may not be as many as uh, as are actually out there. Yeah, and now they're doing antibody testing, and they've actually even done wastewater testing, and the estimation is that probably about a third of the population either has it or has had it, uh, and that's a pretty striking number, you know in terms of how fast and easily this thing spreads. Yeah. And, and since uh, your wife had very mild symptoms, it's possible that, that plenty of us have, have already had it. And we thought it was just, you know, a little, little touch of the flu that came and went and didn't really think twice about it. Yeah. And that's one of the lessons I've been, you know, trying to kind of spread the word is that, we make all these assumptions about our health and our bodies and who we are and what can and can't happen. And that's very reckless. You know, we, we think because, oh, I'm, I'm just too cool to get it or I'm too young or that only affects men or blah, blah, blah. You come up with all these reasons why, oh, it won't happen to me. But uh, everyone should be a little more open minded as to the possibility, A, that they'll get it and B, um, you know, the healthcare workers told me what makes this so difficult for them is they can't get their arms around any one set course of treatment because it acts so differently in every single individual. Uh, one person, like my wife, may cough a few times and shrug it off, but another person in their 20s may go on a ventilator and sit on a ventilator for three weeks and then be taken off and pass away. And other people are walking into ERs and dying by that night. You know, it's just so random. So not to get too far down the, uh, the rabbit hole here, but uh, you know, over the weekend, there were a number of protests uh, in various States around the country, people who who were upset about, uh, you know, the, the lockdown that most States are under at this point. Um, you know, so for, first of all, we had some people say that the disease doesn't even exist, that it's all, you know, some sort of conspiracy. <laughs> well, there's that. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll leave that to Alex Jones. I think, you know, people kind of have to take your word for it, but uh, I don't think you're, you're a CIA plant who's, who's just telling us. You, you, you had no, it, I think, no, I, I checked my wallet. I don't have that ID on me. So. Yeah. And, and you think you would know that if that, money popped up in your bank account, uh, unlike the, uh, the stimulus, I think, think you'd notice that. Yeah, well, what's interesting about me is that I'm someone who traditionally would very much be on the side of, let's not overreact to this, let's not destroy the economy, let's get back to work. I mean, that's my inclination. Those, those are my leanings. But, you know, I've had this personal experience and learned Uh, what this virus is capable of and how devastating it can be. And we've started crassly thinking in terms of uh, lives as collateral damage. So now now we're going to open up society in order to save the economy, which we might have no choice. That might just be something we have to do. But there is a trade-off. There are going to be people who get infected and die because of this. And we're just going to have to view them and those lives as expendable and collateral damage, which seems a little heartless. But we've got a real Sophie's choice here. You know, it's like no matter what you do, uh, 
there's going to be negative effects. This is a very, very thin needle to try to thread. And I would not want to be the president. I would not want to be a governor. And I would not want to be a national health leader because they're making these decisions, again, with the information they have in hand at the moment, which could be wrong. You know, in the, in the beginning, we heard distance six feet, and people are still doing that and thinking six feet. Well, like we've learned it's more like 13 feet. So even when you're putting all of the suggested measures into place, this virus is having no problem whatsoever continuing to spread. Yeah. And I, I think it's an indication of how dangerous it is that, uh, you know, as, as you said, you're, you're a guy who's in pretty good shape. You take care of yourself and it's still affected you so much. So you can imagine if you're someone who has any sort of health problem at all, and then you add this on top of it, you can see how it could, it could get deadly pretty quickly. Yeah. And then you've got the whole thing about, well, it's affecting minority communities um, more adversely than white communities. So now you're going to have a racial element that gets introduced to do we end the lockdown or do we not? Are we putting African-American lives more at risk? I think the latest statistic out of Richland County in South Carolina showed that 30 to 50 percent of people who get put on a ventilator um, will not be able to come off of it, that that they will pass away. And that's an astonishing number. And I had to face that myself because the assumption was when I was in the ER that I was going to be put on a vent. Um, That discussion didn't happen around me, but I brought it up and I said, guys, if at all possible, let's not do a vent. Give me a chance to fight this you know, on my own. Let's just see what happens before you put me on a machine. So somebody somewhere cut me a break and didn't put me on one because that is a whole different fork in the road and trip for a COVID-19 patient to get put on a vent. Well, since there's a, you know, at least some kind of shortage uh, of them, they were probably happy that somebody put that much thought into it and said, hey, let's, let's not do it. Yeah. And that's how I was framing it. It It's just like, A, I don't want to take a vent away from someone who needs or wants it more. And B, you know what? I think I've had a really nice long life. It's been storybook. I've been, I've done amazing things. I've met amazing people. If this is it, just make me comfortable and I'm fine with it. You know, that was my philosophy and attitude those first few days when things looked their bleakest. But, uh, yeah, I mean, now there's debate about whether there's a vent shortage or not. You know, the, the estimations of the number of patients that were going to need to be put on a vent uh, didn't turn out to be as bad as originally thought, which is good news. You know, it's there's nothing wrong with being oversupplied in a situation like this. But uh, it's a very, very tricky dance, right, because, uh, again, you all you can do is make the best common sense moves you can given the information that's out there, but knowing that that information is sometimes slanted and sometimes wrong. Yeah. Well, I, I think we're kind of out of the same mindset as far as, uh, you know, maybe being a little bit more libertarian leaning and, and, you know, not necessarily trusting everything that, that comes out of a, 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 a politician and maybe, maybe wanting to second guess all this stuff, but, um, 
you know, my my attitude, especially with these lockdowns, is uh, you can you can basically see what the numbers are, and they're being reported from places that you can trust that as far as we know, the numbers are accurate and you can, you can see if they're going up or down and, you know, you'd sort of be looking for them to be trending down before you'd even want to start talking about, uh, you know, letting, letting everything open up again. At least that, that's my attitude. Like I, I, I am somewhat suspicious of it, but I, as long as there's at least at the moment, a date where we're saying, we're at least going to re-examine everything on this date. Like here in Illinois, it's uh, April 30th, you know, that, that uh, uh, the lockdown either will or will not end. And and the fact that uh, there's an actual date, somebody's going to have to make a decision and actually stand by it. I, I'm okay with that. So I'm, I'm not going to be one of those people who's protesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, that person is not going to get any love from any direction. And, you know, I think right. what a lot of people misunderstand is that if, if a politician or a public official says something or suggests something it's n- and they get it wrong, uh, it's not that they're monsters or bad people or are trying to blow up the economy or, you know, it's just, this is a very human problem. This is a health problem and a natural world problem. And everyone is just making the best uh, observations they can as we go and as we get info. But, you know, I, I come from the technology space and, you know, if you put bad data and bad information into a model, you're going to get bad information out. And so mm-hmm. that's what concerns me is just what is it that we're out there learning and how is it being vetted and applied? And it feels like the end of this lockdown has come before anything has changed. You know, it's just like... Yeah. They say we're past the peak. Well, based on what? You know, I yeah. what's well, changed? I, I actually thought about that with the uh, with the stimulus thing too. It's like they, they were they were rushing into stimulus before we actually knew what sort of effect this was going to have on the economy. Like for all we know, most businesses, even the small businesses, as soon as they're in a place in a position where they can open up, they'll open back up and every, you know, most of those people still have a job. We don't know that until we actually get out of this. So it seems like with everything they've been, they've been kind of rushing into it. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, the economic threat is very real. So for someone like me, I minored in political science. So I actually, you know, studied the depression and I don't think people understand what that means you know, for for our way of life and how long it's going to be affected. So for the people who are saying, you know, let's let's stay locked down until this fall. I don't know that that's a solid argument either, because you just can't let the economy slide into a depression because that will open up a whole new Pandora's box of both mental and physical conditions that will harm us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think. uh yeah, I, I think uh, you know, like again, from from where I am in, in Illinois, like I, I'm thinking of it as at the end of April, and this may be naive on my part. At the end of April, like we'll be in a position where they can say, okay, you know, let's uh, let's continue trying to social distance as much as possible, but we can open things up, and and things will be more or less back to to where they were before everything everything shut down. If it's not the end of April, if it's the end of May or, you know, the end of June, yeah, then that's a completely different story. Like at that point, you've been, everything's been shut down for so long that 
it it would be a, a depression. Yeah, and I think people are going to start uh, getting a little cagey and push back, and that's already started to happen with these protests. It's just like, well, now we're going to write our own reality, no matter what the truth is, and get out there and yeah. say, this is all a big conspiracy, Let, let's get together again. So I think there's a limited period of time in which you can effectively have a voluntary lockdown. Um, so that's a that's a tricky dance as well. So you've kind of touched on this, uh, you know, throughout the course of our conversation. But what uh, what advice would you have for people who are, uh, you know, uh, to avoid the uh, the the virus and uh, you know just kind of dealing with this whole this whole situation? Yeah. So the the first lesson is don't make assumptions about your health because you will be wrong. There is a very high potential that you will be wrong. Um, the second thing is just a reverence for our healthcare workers, which I certainly developed when I was in the hospital. It's truly amazing to see what they have to do to suit up and protect themselves before they even come in the room. And the only people who can come in your room are the nurses tending to you. So they'll make like these visits after they suited up. Maintenance workers can't come in, so the nurses are actually mopping the floors and throwing out the trash and cleaning the mirror. You know, they're doing everything. Um, And you're laying there perfectly aware that you are a mortal threat to them because you have this virus at which they could get. And they're aware of that. Every time they come in the room, it's literally like entering a burning building to take care of you. And it's an extremely humbling humanizing experience that someone is willing to do that for you. And these aren't people who are getting rich and they really didn't sign up for this. They signed up to work in a hospital and take care of people. They didn't sign up to expose themselves to a lethal virus multiple times a day. That's a whole different animal. Um, and yet they, they do it with, with such amazing skill and compassion. It was just a, uh, very striking to me. There's there's not a lot of celebrating our healthcare workers that would be too much or inappropriate. Yeah. Now, if, now if they if the uh, if Congress and everybody would have said, "Hey, we're going to pass this two trillion dollar stimulus uh, bill, and we're basically just dividing it up amongst the doctors and nurses who have been working," I, I would have been okay with that. That, that, that would have been. Yeah. <laughs> it might have made more sense, you know. Than, than just yeah. throwing money out there and hoping it lands in the right place, which yeah, that's what Congress does. They, they felt an obligation to do something, but you know, it, is all of that relief money accurately targeted? Who knows? Is it being pocketed by the wrong people? Probably, you know, you get a little mm-hmm. jaded about that stuff. But uh, kind of to that end, the third lesson that I came away with was you know, the, the outpouring of love and support that Kim and I got from so many people was really astonishing to me. Um, People we knew, people we didn't know, um, taking time out of their day to check in on us and ask if there was anything Kim needed, just an incredible outpouring of love. And it let me know that from the day we're born, we immediately start pursuing wealth, fame, power, success, you know, whatever defines success for us. And we we just kill ourselves our whole lives to get all this stuff, which in the end, you know, when you're faced with a mortal threat, doesn't matter at all. The only thing that matters is how many people you love and how many people love and care about you. 
that's really all the wealth that there is in the world. And so we just spend so much time and energy pursuing and collecting the things that don't matter instead of pursuing the things that do. So, you know, my message would be that we could take our foot off the gas a little bit in terms of pursuing wealth and fame and whatever it else it is our culture mandates that we do and know that that's not going to protect you from a virus. It does not care. It true it's just business. It's like the mafia. Nothing personal. I don't care how rich you are. I don't care if you're white. I don't care, you know, I don't care about anything except getting into your body and doing as much damage as I can so I can keep spreading. That's all the virus cares about. It doesn't know you. It's not impressed by you. Um, so I think those are the main things that I came away with. Well, thanks so much for sharing your story, Mike. No problem. Happy to do it. Hopefully Mike's experience gave you a little bit of insight into the experience of dealing with the coronavirus. Next week, as promised, we'll check in with KJ about his experience flying around Presidents Bush and Clinton. In the meantime, however, if you have a story that can top Mike's or KJ's, shoot me an email at greateststoryeverpodcast at gmail.com. Also, please help people find this show by sharing it on social media and also rating and reviewing the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Gabatron.